0: A prison cell in which one waits, hopes, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. Those are the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, in 1943. He knew something about prisons as well, uh, as a would-be assassin uh, of Hitler, who then was imprisoned. Uh, A prison... whose door of which has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. Advent is about the outside entering in. The eternal, holy, other God enters into the world that he created. And there really is no better or more significant picture of that than the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is God the Son who takes on flesh and enters into the mess of this world in order to open the door of freedom to the prison cell of our sin. And therefore, what we all need is not to look inside ourselves, as conventional wisdom would have you think. It's not to look inside ourselves and to follow your heart. The real remedy to all that is wrong with the world, the real remedy to all that is broken and corrupted, first and foremost, is to look outside ourselves to something that enters in. So though Advent doesn't actually start till next Sunday, uh, we're actually kicking off this morning our Advent sermon series so that we'll have enough time to look at each of the five mothers of Jesus that appear in Matthew chapter 1. So if you're familiar with Matthew chapter 1, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew recounts in the opening chapter of his Gospel the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And among the names that show up there are references to five women. We might call them the mothers of Jesus. And as we'll step through their stories in these coming weeks, we'll see just how much this is true, just how much these women were outsiders. Uh, many of them were racial outsiders. They were, two of them were Canaanites. Uh, one of them was a Moabite. They were also moral outsiders. Their stories, if you're not familiar with them already, and you will be soon, their stories are full of scandal, full of sin. And then beyond that, the simple fact that they were women meant that they were gender outsiders in a male-dominated society. And here's why this is so significant. In this culture, first century Judaism, your genealogy wasn't just your genealogy, it was your resume. It's what showed your line, it's what showed your pedigree. In first century Judaism, women were hardly ever included in a genealogy, let alone women who weren't Jews and who had a tainted moral background. That's the kind of stuff that you edit out of your resume. Some of you have been looking for jobs recently. You edit your resume to make it look good, yes? So even though it's true, when I was applying to to join the Liberty Network and be a church planter, even though it's true, I did not include on my resume the three months that I worked as a mascot for a professional hockey team. (laughs) It's a fun little tidbit. It doesn't really belong in that. I edited that part out. But this isn't just anybody's genealogy. This is, in Matthew 1, this is Jesus' genealogy. And if ever there is a picture of an outsider who is entering in, it's the picture of Jesus. The one who left glory to enter into our darkness and bring light. The one who left perfection to enter into chaos and to bring renewal. And the one who left life to enter into death in order to bring resurrection. And herein lies the big idea of this entire sermon series. If you get nothing out of the next five weeks, please get this. That because Jesus entered from the outside in, we who would otherwise forever be outsiders can enter into the kingdom of God. Because Jesus entered from the outside in, we who would otherwise forever be outsiders ourselves, we can enter into the kingdom of God. And not only enter in, but we can become part of the very work and mission that God is accomplishing as he reconciles the world to himself. So over these next weeks, as we'll consider the lives of these five female ancestors of Jesus, we'll celebrate how God has made a way for outsiders to enter in. And through their stories, we'll also consider our own need to look outside of ourselves that we too might share in the grace of the God who has entered in. This week we're going to consider the story of Tamar, which we find in the book of Genesis, chapter 38. Just a quick little warning. This is some PG-13-ish material in uh, Genesis 38. Most of our uh, kids, K through 5th grade, are in Liberty Kids and then the Nursery Kids are out. Uh, But if there's some reason you would not want your child to hear this, just be a good chance for you to um, sneak out maybe uh, for this portion of of that. But, um, But it's in the Bible, so we should read it. We should learn from it. Genesis 38. I'm going to invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother." And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house, till Shelah my son grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adolamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, He did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord God, in all that you have written down and all that you have spoken to us, we wish to see Jesus. So by your Spirit's power, give us eyes to see his glory. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Perhaps like a handful of you, I grew up in the church, and I was really blessed with some great Sunday school teachers, pastors, mentors. Also, I was blessed to have parents who were strong Christians And so I was taught a lot uh, about the Bible, about the things of God, uh, from a very early age on into young adulthood. Nowhere in any of that, though, was the story of Genesis 38. Nowhere in that. This is a messed up story with some messed up people. Uh, And if you're newer to Christianity, if you're exploring Christianity, if you're not familiar with the Bible, this stuff sounds like it belongs more on an episode of Jerry Springer than it does in Holy Scripture. And yet, you know, here it is. The Bible is not a book about human heroes. The Bible, cover to cover, is a book about the greatness of God. Who God is, what he's done, sometimes he does that as people beautifully and willingly participate along with him. Other times, oftentimes, it's what God does in spite of very flawed people like you and me, who seem to be doing everything in their power to thwart his work and to thwart his plans in the world. But God is not one who just creates and then steps back and says, let's see what happens. He creates and then actively, lovingly enters in and reveals himself and continues that good work that he's begun. And Tamar's story in Genesis 38 teaches us that when the outside enters in, these three transformations occur. Interruption becomes integral. Fraud and folly become faithfulness. And the wrong become the righteous. So that's what we'll spend the rest of our time talking about this morning. First, when the outside enters in, interruption becomes integral. How many of you enjoy uh, interruptions in your life? How many of you enjoy interruptions? Nobody. Not even one. Okay. I was was expecting maybe a couple hands, and I was just going to say, I don't get you. I love you. I just don't understand you. Maybe you're all exactly like me. That's, That's easy. That makes it easier. Uh, If you're like me, I like efficiency. um, I like productivity. Which means that I really rarely, if ever, appreciate interruptions. Uh, And most recently, actually not most recently, most recently is right now because there's sewage flowing into my shower at home this morning. Like 15 minutes after I got here, I got a call from my wife. So my mind's been a little bit everywhere. And I'm literally preaching the truth of this sermon to myself in this moment this morning. But more, except for this morning, most recently... This became painfully evident to me when our third daughter, Felicity, was nine days late from her due date and being born. Those extra days that were in there were an unexpected interruption to how we thought the month of October was going to play out. Um, our oldest two girls were born like right after their due date and then right on their due date. So if anything, we were prepared for our third to come early uh, or on the due date. But she did not. And for each of those next nine days that interruption to how we envisioned the month of October playing out. We were trying to arrange family visits from out of town, who's going to come in when, so they can meet the baby. Um, I was trying not to meet or schedule fewer meetings with people and not preach for a couple weeks. All of that stuff got shoved back later into the month of October when there was all of this other stuff bearing down on us. And what that did, which is really discouraging to me as I look back on it, it stirred in me a real frantic, restless angst. And it put a spotlight, not for the first time, but again, on how in spite of my best efforts to be efficient, to be productive, to plan things out, life just does not work that way. It's not, it's not cooperate with my efficiency and productivity. Interruptions are where the real substance of life happens. And that's because people like us, the lives of real people, they don't play out in these efficient, productive ways. So what I'm realizing in this is the more that we begin to despise interruptions, the more we actually begin to despise life itself. And even more, the more we begin to despise interruptions, the more we begin to despise real flesh-and-blood people with real flesh-and-blood problems. And this is why Genesis 38 is important and convicting to people like me. Because in its context, the second half of the book of Genesis, Genesis 38 is an interruption an interruption, or at least it seems that way. Verse 1, it happened at that time. What time is the, is the narrator, the author of Genesis, referring to? Right in the middle of the primary storyline of Joseph. So in Genesis 37, the chapter before this, Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. In Genesis 39, the chapter right after this, there's the account of Joseph in the household of Potiphar, eventually rising to power, where he then eventually becomes the one who saves descendants of Abraham from the famine that's going on in Canaan. But in between Genesis 37 and Genesis 39 is Genesis 38, an interruption about Judah and Tamar, except that historically and biblically, which one of these is the storyline? It's this. This is the storyline. The Messiah doesn't come from Joseph's line. The Messiah comes from Judah's line. And these characters that are mentioned in Genesis 38 that would otherwise appear to the original audience to be tangential, maybe, to the story, Tamar and Perez, they are the very names that show up in Matthew 1 in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So here in Genesis 38 is a, quote, interruption that is integral to the redemptive history of God. And if you're like me and you don't appreciate interruptions like I don't appreciate interruptions, let this teach you to embrace interruptions as integral work that God is doing. There will be moments in your life where you will not be able to perceive in that moment anything about what God is doing. Where your your current circumstances will only feel like a tangent, like an interruption, and you'll just want to get past that tangent and on with the rest of the main story. But Genesis 38 teaches us the interruptions are the story. The interruptions are the story. Time will prove that there are no meaningless interruptions in the story of God. There is no tangential storyline. So when you're frustrated by interruptions, remember that, because it's a really convicting memory of that, reminder of that, that this is not your or my story to narrate. It is God's story to narrate. And remember that your control over how and what and when you do things is oh so limited. And in those moments, trust again in the God who is outside of us, and therefore as one who is outside of us, sees and knows all. He is always writing his story, and that story will always, in certain moments, feel like an interruption to us. Second, when the outside enters in, fraud and folly become faithfulness. Fraud and folly become faithfulness faithfulness. There's a lot wrong that happens in Genesis 38. Hopefully you heard a lot of it, but let's just recap some of the highlights. Judah marries a woman from Canaan. That's how it starts out. Uh, That was not acceptable for a descendant of Abraham. So when it says there at the beginning of this text that Judah went down from his brothers, there's a double meaning to that. So he went down geographically, topographically. Uh, The town he was in before is higher elevation-wise than the town that he went to. But it's also a picture of spiritual and moral decline. He's going down, and as it says, he turns aside. So rather than being a blessing to the people of Canaan, as he was called to do as part of Abraham's line, Judah instead is going to mirror the wickedness of Canaan. It says that Judah has three sons by his wife, and then his wife suddenly dies. Uh, His oldest son, named Ur, marries this woman named Tamar. And then we immediately read that Ur was wicked in the eyes of God, so God put him to death. Don't know why exactly or what that was, but God put him to death. Under the law of Moses, and in the ancient Near East, there was a practice that was known as leveret marriage. And what that is, is that when a man died, uh, and died without a son, his brother, if he had one, was supposed to marry his brother's wife, and to provide children... Uh, to preserve that deceased brother's name and to carry on his family line. And so that's actually what happens here. It's It's actually exactly what's supposed to play out is how it starts. Judah does the right thing, and he directs his second son named Onan to marry Tamar. But we read Onan doesn't want to provide a son on behalf of his dead brother. It won't be officially, legally, his son. And moreover, probably some of the real reason why he's struggling with that, doesn't want to do it, is because it would diminish his share of the inheritance when Judah died. If it's just him and his one brother left, the inheritance only gets, to, gets split those two ways, whereas if Ur's if family line is still in existence, you now, you're now dividing up the inheritance in other ways. Notice, however, that though Onan is not willing to take on the responsibilities and actually the real purpose of leveret marriage, he's more than willing to enjoy the sexual benefits of it. So he'll take the benefits but he'll pass on the responsibilities. And like most of the men in this story, he treats women really as nothing more than an object to fulfill sexual desire and provide lineage. This, of course, is also wicked in the eyes of God, and it says God puts Onan to death too. At this point, then, Judah says to Tamar, hey, uh, maybe don't marry my third son just yet. People who marry you tend to die pretty quickly. But what is Judah doing when he says that to Tamar? He's blaming the wrong person. He's blaming a widow who at this point in the story is only a victim. Is it Tamar's fault that Ur is dead? Is it Tamar's fault that Onan is dead? In both cases, it says that the man was wicked and God put him to death. Nothing about Tamar's fault in that anywhere. Adding injury to insult... Judah has a responsibility to care for Tamar now, but instead of that, he abdicates responsibility and he makes her someone else's problem. He tells Tamar to remain a widow and rather, hey, come live with me while you remain a widow and my son grows up. He says, go back and live with your family. Go back and live in your father's house. So not only can you not marry my third son right now, but you need to go ahead and get out of my house, is what he's saying to her. There's some time that passes. Judah's third son, Sheila, grows up. But Judah doesn't, doesn't direct him to marry Tamar to provide descendants for Ur. So Judah seems to be hoping here that all of this and all of his responsibilities is just going to somehow disappear into the vacuum of time. He's hoping this is as time passes, people will forget, maybe Tamar will forget, and it'll just disappear. So you can hear already in this this is a bad situation where people are sinning against God, they're sinning against one another. Then it just gets worse and it just gets weirder. When you read the book of Genesis, you'll find, and if you're unfamiliar with Genesis never had a chance to read it, I would really encourage you to take time to do that at some point. You'll find that this is a family of con artists. It's a family of con artists, frauds and deceivers. It's a a generational sin. So consider just the last couple generations of this family. Jacob cons his brother and his father, his brother Esau, his father Isaac, into getting the birthright from Isaac. So he puts on goats hair on his arms to make himself appear hairier than he actually is. He puts on Esau's clothes. He steals the birthright from Esau. A little bit down the road, Jacob himself is then deceived by his sons, including Judah, about what happened to the favorite son, Joseph. So Judah and his brothers sell Joseph off into slavery, but they don't want to tell their father that they did that, so they take his, you know, the the, the infamous coat of many colors and they kill a goat, and they put blood all over that coat, and they say, hey, an animal killed Joseph. He's no longer here. Now here, Judah becomes the mark of the con. Tamar disguises herself in different clothes. Judah offers payment of a goat to hire her services as a prostitute. So here's the thing. In the book of Genesis, if there's a goat and some kind of clothing involved, somebody's getting deceived. (laughs) If you see a goat and you see a piece of clothing, someone is getting conned in that moment, in the story of Genesis. Lest we forget this, Tamar is seducing her father-in-law. It's her father-in-law. So here at this point in the story, she's no longer a passive victim. She adds her own fraud, her own folly, into the mix of all of this. And Judah, really unsurprisingly, goes for it. Uh, Without knowing it's her, the author makes a a definitive point to say he doesn't know it's his daughter-in-law. Without knowing it's her, Judah gets his daughter-in-law pregnant. As a payment or as a pledge for payment, he leaves a signet or a seal, which would be worn around his neck on a cord. He leaves both of those things, and he also leaves his staff. Um, So these would have been personalized items that wealthy men would carry around with them in the ancient Near East, and they'd use them in conducting business and legal transactions. So when Judah leaves these behind and then goes after them later but can't find her and can't get them back, that would kind of be like, in our day, uh, a reputable, wealthy man leaving his credit cards at a brothel. It would be kind of like that. Left his credit cards at a brothel. It's an identifying marker. And as we see here, Judah really cares about his reputation. He's really sensitive to that. When he can't find her, he says, just forget it. Get out of there. We'll call the card company. We'll cancel that stuff. We'll be laughed at. We'll become the butt of a joke if we just don't forget this and move on. Fast forward from there a couple months, three months, and Judah gets really self-righteous when he finds out that Tamar is pregnant. And he calls for her death. And that's a maddening response on multiple fronts. Right? It's hypocrisy, it's self-righteousness. Think about this. The reason that you would pursue the death penalty in a situation like this is only if a woman was married or betrothed. So if it were actual adultery. And the only way that this qualifies as adultery is if if Tamar is still betrothed to Shelah, Judah's son. So that betrothal means absolutely nothing to Judah in terms of actually going through with marrying his son off to Tamar. He doesn't care about that at all. But when she's pregnant, all of a sudden that betrothal means everything to him to the point of calling for her death. So it's not only self-righteousness. It's that Judah has found a convenient way to forever avoid having his only son to marry Tamar. If she's dead, Tamar's not his problem anymore. He doesn't have to worry about it anymore. This is all over. Then, of course, Tamar produces these items that belong to Judah, proving that he's the father of the baby. And finally, all the way down in verse 26, Judah breaks, and he wakes up to his own sinfulness, and he sees his own wickedness for what it is. So clearly, uh, there's a lot that's wrong with this picture. And think about it this way. Apart from the grace of God, all this is, in Genesis 38, all this is is fraud and folly. But because God is at work in the midst of this, the fraud, the folly, the sin become a display of God's faithfulness. These deceptions, not only here but for generations now, they are the means that God uses to secure descendants and carry on his covenantal promises. When you make your way through the genealogy of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, you'll see that from one of Tamar's twins, from Perez, eventually comes Boaz, eventually comes King David, eventually comes Jesus. So learn this from the story of Tamar, that our fraud and our folly become the arena in which the faithfulness of God shines all the brighter. That God will not work only with our active obedience and participation. He'll work in spite of our rebellion, of our rejection, of our deception. And it makes the power of his faithfulness that much more evident in the eyes of all who would care to see. And then as these specific frauds from Genesis 38, these specific follies, are caught up into the storyline of the Savior of the world, Advent should always be a reminder... That when the outside enters in, even our fraud becomes part of God's faithfulness. That in the mysteries of God, even our sin becomes part of God's great redemptive work. That's not an excuse for sin. That's not a pass from human responsibility to pursue faithfulness to God. What it is, though, and this is what we need, is an assurance that you and I are not powerful enough to thwart the work of God not an excuse for your sin. It is an assurance that you and I are not powerful enough to thwart the plan and the purposes of God in our lives and in the world. So as you begin this advent season, whatever it is in your life that feels irredeemable or that feels beyond the reach of God's grace, know for certain that it is not. And know for certain that you are not. Because if God has redeemed this family, and not only redeemed them, but incorporated them into the genealogy of the Savior of the world, then know for certain that God can bring that same kind of powerful redemption for you. And that in spite of however you have made a wreck of things, you can be rescued by the faithfulness of God. The thing is, is that you will have to look outside of yourself for that redemption. You will have to. Don't buy the lie that says you have everything you need inside yourself. Don't buy the lie that just says follow your heart. It'll all work out in time. Look outside yourself to the God of all redemption because it's only through his mercy, it's only through his grace that our fraud and folly becomes a display of his faithfulness. And then third and finally, when the outside enters in, the wrong become the righteous. The wrong become the righteous. So from the beginning of the story, Tamar is just the wrong person. She's just the wrong person. She's a Canaanite. Uh, she's not supposed to uh, be married to an Israelite person. She's not someone an Israelite should marry. Uh, she's an outsider. But by the end of the story, she is more righteous than any of the members of Abraham's family line in this text. And Judah himself, the one from whom Jesus, Jesus comes genealogically, says in verse 26, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah. An Old Testament scholar named Bruce Waltke puts it this way, Tamar, a wrong wife, saves the family by her loyalty to it. So she probably, and think about what you would have done in her shoes, she probably should have abandoned this family and returned to her Canaanite roots. Uh, she probably should have said, good riddance to Judah and all of his descendants, left them to fend for themselves. But because she doesn't, because she persists in having an heir for this family, her deception of Judah actually just as much, if not more, is a condemnation of Judah's omission than it is of her own deception. So Tamar does something that's wrong here. It's a horrible thing. And it's what we've seen other people in Genesis do time and time again, where they take things into their own hands rather than trusting in the plan and the work of God. But here's the amazing thing. The narrator of Genesis, and hopefully you heard this, is incredibly favorable to Tamar. It's a favorable impression of Tamar in Genesis 38. Why? Because she is the most righteous person in this story. So think about it this way. Think about the condition of humanity that's expressed in Genesis 38 this way. That the woman who seduced her father-in-law is the paragon of righteousness. That's the story of Genesis 38. The woman who seduced her father-in-law is the paragon of righteousness. And the scandalousness of that, for good church-going folk like you and me, the scandalousness of that is beautiful. Why? Because it means there is hope for us too. You and I are outsiders apart from the grace of God. We are racial outsiders. Nearly everybody in this room is not a biological descendant of Abraham. Which means that racially we are not among the chosen people of God. So we are dependent upon God in Christ tearing down those dividing walls of hostility and making one new humanity out of the many. So that we who were outsiders might enter in. And we are moral outsiders. The difference between you and me and the people in this story is not you. It's the mercy and grace of God that has intervened in your life. So think about this. Have you ever turned aside, like Judah did, from the path that God would have you walk? Have you ever used another person for sexual gratification? Have you ever enjoyed the benefits of a relationship while shirking the responsibilities? Have you ever cared more about your reputation than about people who are made in the image of God? Have you ever deceived and manipulated people to accomplish whatever it is you wanted to accomplish? Then though the specifics are certainly different, underneath you and I are no different from Judah and Ur and Onan and Tamar. And all of that means that you and I are the wrong ones for the kingdom of God. And that left to ourselves, the best that we could do is to be like Tamar in the story, to be the least wicked person. Isn't that how we often try to justify ourselves? Let's just be the least wicked person. And let's make sure that the people I'm hanging out with in my family or my friends or my neighborhood or school, or whatever it is, let's make sure I'm just one step better than them or a couple steps better than them. There's a better than average chance you did some of that this week around your Thanksgiving table. As family and friends were in town, just sizing everybody up and comparing and making sure, okay, at least I'm not doing that. I'm doing a little bit better than him, I have a little bit more money than him. I haven't shipwrecked my life quite as bad as that person. This is what we do. But the gospel is that because God enters in, because centuries later, through the family line of these very people, Jesus Christ came and dwelt among us, we who would otherwise forever be outsiders can enter in. And not only enter in because we're the least wicked, we can enter in as the righteous. Through Jesus, you and I, don't have to hang our lives on at least I didn't, or at least I don't, or at least I'm not. Because of Jesus, we get to hang our lives on the beautiful reality that though we are the wrong ones, though we are great sinners, Jesus is an even greater Savior. And God in his grace clothes us with the very righteousness of Jesus even when we were dead in our sins. So the wrong truly become not just the least wicked, but the righteous. May you this Advent season see even more clearly that because Jesus enters in from the outside, we who are outsiders and would forever otherwise be outsiders can enter into the kingdom of God. And in the story of Tamar, may you rejoice that the wrong people are the very ones whose stories God redeems. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we are grateful that you who were an outsider to this flawed and broken earth entered in to rescue us from it. And we are grateful that the story, your, your story, your genealogy, includes people like Judah and Ur and Onan and Tamar. We're grateful, God, that you redeem what sin would destroy and that there are no interruptions in your story, that they all have meaning and purpose. Give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to perceive how important the interruptions are in our own lives. Give us eyes to see how even our fraud and our folly gets incorporated into your redemptive work. Give us eyes to see that we were the wrong ones, but we have been made righteous through the work of Christ. And as we come to this table, we see the basis for our righteousness, Jesus, that you gave your body, you gave your blood to redeem us from our sins, to give us forgiveness from that sin, to give us new life. We are grateful, Jesus, for your redeeming work that you have entered into our lives to heal and restore and to bring redemption. May we look upon it now as we come. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.